0: Bike racing is back and Flow Bikes is your home for live and on-demand coverage of the biggest events of the year including the Giro d'Italia Tour of Flanders Amstel Gold Race Tirreno Adriatico and much, much more Go behind the scenes with exclusive interviews in-depth documentaries and a host of other cycling-related content Additionally, our friends up north in Canada get access to the Tour de France Vuelta a España Liege-Bastogne-Liege and Paris-Roubaix Subscribe today by going to flowbikes.com Forward slash Velo News. That is FLOBikes.com forward slash Velo News. And when you purchase a Flow Bike subscription, you'll get access to the entire Flow Sports network of over 25 sports. So don't miss out. Sign up today, FlowBikes.com forward slash Velo News. That's FLOBikes.com forward slash Velo News. Thanks to Flow Bikes for sponsoring this week's episode. Okay, let's get on podcast. Uh, welcome back. Welcome back to the Vail News Podcast. Uh, Fred Dryer coming to you from yet another busy, busy Tuesday here at the uh, Fred Dreyer headquarters outside of Boulder, Colorado. We had bike racing going on today. All these squads are releasing their Tour de France rosters. It's nonstop news as we barrel towards the Tour de France, which now uh, today, the day we're recording this, is only five days away Uh, Tour de France in late August early September it's going to be an interesting race to follow folks and uh, you know a quick peek behind the curtain here much of what The VeloNews team has been doing over the last, uh, I mean, weeks, months, has been trying to figure out what covering the Tour de France looks like this year. I'm sure you have seen on our website various news stories about the COVID-19 restrictions, media restrictions, access restrictions that are being put into place this year. Hey, it's all good. You know, we want the race to be as safe as possible and want the riders to be as safe as possible I think that, you know, holding an event like this during the era of COVID-19 is something of a gamble in itself. Again, if you if if you want to, you know, come at me on Twitter say Fred, you know, we should not be holding the Tour de France, like I'm not going to argue with you. Like you are you are, you're probably right. Um but because of the restrictions, um getting like reporting at the race, bringing you interesting fresh perspective, exclusive perspective, in-depth perspective is going to be something of a challenge. And so over the last month or so, we've been putting our heads together to come up with a game plan for bringing you all the, you know, the cool, interesting bike racing content that you want and crave to help you follow along with the race. Um, and I feel like we have a really good plan and I'm, I'm really excited to get the race started, to see what it's going to look like. So James Start and Andrew Hood are going to be on the ground at the Tour de France, and they're going to be providing a lot of reporting on the race, the culture, the fans, um, the riders. Yes, but access to riders is going to be a bit limited. So we are working on some workarounds to get you the thoughts and perspective on the riders as well. And tentatively these all could evolve. Um, here's a little snapshot of what it's gonna look like. Um, for the Velo News podcast, we're actually going to increase our uh, frequency. So we're gonna be doing three podcasts a week during the Tour de France. So um, Andy and James are going to be doing segments taking you inside the race, what it's like to be there their eyes and their ears, the people they're talking to, what it's like to be at the race. Um, I am going to be doing some segments with a number of uh, cycling celebrities, people who are smarter than me. I believe um, some other pro riders uh, are going to be involved. We're still nailing that down. Um, I'm going to have audio diaries from some riders in the race. Um, We are working with Gigi Van Garderen, Nielsen Paulus, a few other names to be determined about um, supplying us with some perspective of what it's like to be in the event and well those will be in the podcast so uh three days a week set your dial if you know if you don't want to listen to podcasts about the tour de france i guess just you know i don't know mute it or something like that but that's what's going to be going on with the podcast with the site we're going to have all the news race reports information photo galleries that you expect at velonews.com um, for our Active Pass members, we have a bunch of cool regular perks that we're going to have. We're going to have exclusive Tour de France content for Active Pass members. Again, Active Pass, uh, $99. You get a year of coaching with today's plan. You get access to the Elephant Rock Grand Fondo. You get cool deals with industry partners like Jordana, Scratch Labs, just a whole bunch of them. You get a Bell News print subscription. And then you get this daily content. And so Active Pass members... Here's what we got lined up. Um, we're going to have a daily tour diary from Andrew Hood, which is going to be, you know, putting you on the ground at the tour, what he's seeing, what the chatter is on the ground, you know, probably some unfiltered, unfettered type of uh, perspective and thought. Um, we're going to have daily roundtables tables uh, with Jim, with uh, James start and Andrew hood. And as an added perk, these roundtables are going to consist of questions supplied by you our readers. So, Active Pass readers, I'm calling on you to come up with your best Tour de France questions. And we're going to have a form on our website and on the roundtable blogs themselves where you can submit your questions. And we're going to pose them to uh, Andy and James and probably myself too. But they're they're the real celebrities here because they're on the ground and they have combined you know 60 years with the Tour de France reporting experience. So we're going to have these daily roundtables. We're also going to have some daily feature stories. Um, And we're going to have, on the rest days, we're going to do a video chat. That's right. We're doing it. We're doing a video chat with Andy and James at the tour. And so check out on VeloNews.com. We're going to have some uh, more information on that coming up. But um, Monday, I I think it's going to be probably midday East Coast time. You will be able to, if you're an Active Pass member, chime in and uh, ask those guys some questions about what it's like to be there at the race. Um, anyway, Active Pass continues to evolve. Oh, we're also going to have a daily VeloNews vault piece from Tour de France reporting on years gone by. And I've been looking at some of these VN vault pieces and they are cool. We're talking about stuff from the eighties, stuff from the mid nineties. There was a cool piece on there about like Bernard, he and him leaving the yellow Jersey mysteriously. Uh, it's it's going to be fun stuff. So, That's all going to be behind Active Pass, be involved in the Active Pass membership. So, again, I suggest you all, at the very least, take a peek at it. I get it. Uh, Subscription services aren't for everyone, but I feel like the one we've put together and the effort we're putting into it, um, it's the very least worth taking a look at. Um, Anyway, our Tour de France coverage here on the News podcast continues this week as uh, we have the second half of our top contenders for the race. Last week, myself, James, and Andy went through contenders number 10 through 6. This week, we are going number 5 to number 1. We've had to put some runner-up contenders onto our list, though, because (laughs) Garrett Thomas and Chris Froome, spoiler alert, they were on our list, and those guys are not going to the tour so uh, we had to do some adjusting there. Um, before we get to contenders list, though, Andy, James, and I link up to talk about all the big news going on in this past week of cycling from Ineos' decision to leave Garrett Thomas and Chris Froome at home, what it means for those guys, what it means for Team Ineos, as well as the tour's new rule for COVID, uh, COVID-19 safety, the, the two strikes and you're out rule, which is that if any team's have riders, two or more riders or staff who either test positive for COVID-19 or even show symptoms, the team could get kicked out and what that means for the race. Anyway, that's my preamble. Let's get on to James Start and Andrew Hood. Thanks again for tuning into this week's podcast. Okay, now back on the line for the last time before they embark Disembark to France, or at least the starting line at, at Nice, I have James Start and Andrew Hood. Uh, guys, today, uh, second half of the show, we're going to get to the second half of our contenders, that being contender number five through number one. But before we get to that, we have so much news to get through because, per usual, the week before the Tour de France is filled with so many uh, pieces of news and revelations. So let's just start from the top. News story number one, Team Ineos announces its Tour de France lineup And missing from the team, Chris Froome and Garrett Thomas, both left off the team, uh, Pavel Sivakov and Richard Karapaz going in their place, Um, Andy Hood. I mean, you know, we all knew that Chris Froome was kind of on the bubble to me. the, the, The big story there is Garrett Thomas. But take me through the day, this was past week, when this story breaks and what your knee-jerk hot take was.
1: Yeah, I was I was surprised. I, I agree with Fred. I mean, uh, Froome maybe was, you know, not quite as big of a surprise, especially in the context of him going to Israel, him coming off that uh, big crash. You could kind of see Froome. Uh, from what I've heard, his power numbers are good, but he, he lacks kind of that racing uh, edge. And, uh, but, you know, seeing Garrett Thomas off, that was a big shocker. But for me, kind of the thing that struck me was, you know, this is a process that, that Brailsford started a couple of years ago, that he was already looking beyond Froome and Thomas. Uh, He started recruiting really quite heavily in 2017 and 18, uh, bringing in that whole kind of class that included Sivikov and Bernal, uh, a host of other young riders as well that are on the team now. And in fact, uh, this team is really kind of Enio's version, you know, 3.0. You know, you had that initial kind of – class, uh, the foundation of the team with Wiggins was the flag bearer. And then they transitioned, you know, really did the same thing with Wiggins for from 2012 into 13. And then uh, just uh, Brailsford, you know, was looking to the future and he found the future, I think, faster than he expected. In fact, the whole team of the eight riders, only Luke Rowe is kind of the old school sky rider. I think he joined in 2012. Kiewikowski joined in 2016. Everybody else is on the team since 2018 or sooner. So it's, it's a process that Brailsford started. I think, you know, I think he pulled the plug on both of those guys earlier than they could have expected, but the writing's been on the wall, man. It's like the future is Bernal. Air
2: or Sigikov. You know, we, we, we're, we haven't talked much about him, but, uh, when Bernal won the, uh, the Tour de l'Avenir, what, three years ago? The last stage was won by Sivikov, long, still a breakaway mountaintop finish. Um, uh, Sivakov was was the hottest rider of the year. He didn't win Tour de that year, but he was the hottest rider. You know, he's pure cycling pedigree. His parents are Russian uh, cyclists and professionals. And uh, and I've been watching him this year, and he seems to be really coming along. He's dropped a lot of weight. He's getting stronger. You know, well, everybody's talking Bernal, but maybe in the next three years, you're going to see them shifting off like like uh, like any like any and and Sky years having. Multiple winners in the tours kind of trading off here and there. We don't know. Sivakov is a real deal. And there's no reason why he can't be a tour winner.
0: You know, one of the knee jerk reactions that I had in reading the fallout from this story, there were a number of columns written about how, oh, this is just Dave Brailsford's, you know, his ruthless way of looking at victory where you're never going to pay for past performances. Even if you're a four time Tour de France champion, you are not guaranteed to be on the team. And this is, you know, the the ruthless pursuit of victory, here it is, which is true, and I I get it, you know, Brailsford wants to take the riders who are fittest, but the other way I was looking at it was, okay, Froome, he's not making the tour team, he's going to get sent to the Welta, but that makes, he has a good excuse. I mean, he was in a hospital bed a year ago, he had to be put back together using science and medical engineering to get, even just be ready to this point, Um, he is, you know... The crash was terrible. The one that I still have a question mark about is Garrett Thomas. Um, Garrett Thomas, you would think, is healthy. And he has, like everyone else, had this COVID-19 shutdown and has had to train and then get back ready for the tour. But why wasn't he fit? Why wasn't he in good enough shape? I mean, was he really in that bad of shape? I mean, he didn't look particularly strong at the Criterium du Dauphiné. His, the the pulls that he was taking on the front were short but it wasn't like Froome where he was getting tailed off you know kilometers from the summit so the questions i have are like okay why boot Garrett thomas off the tour team and send him to the giro and then b what's going on Garrett thomas your job is to train and ride and get ready for these big races what what the heck happened well i think
2: that uh, you know it's not as easy, you know these older riders are of a disadvantage uh, Philippe Gilbert said that uh, told that to 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 me in a press conference not too long ago. Um, you know, it just takes longer for their engines to get going. Garen, uh told me at the Dauphiné, uh, you know, I said, "Hey, you know, my numbers are good. I'm just kind of waiting to, hoping to pop it, you know, into form." That he and he could certainly have been a a, a good player on on the uh, on the tour team for them. Who knows? Could have potentially really come into form in the last week. But maybe not. Maybe he would have just been a, a decent team rider. Whereas if he gets another month to get his, his form in on paper, that Giro is a much better race for him with all those time trials. There's not that much competition. And as he's all, always said, you know, I have unfinished business, business at the Giro. I don't, you know, I think if Garen had won the tour last year, it'd be a different game, but he didn't. And I think he's, I think he's going to go down as a one tour winner, which is pretty damn good for a guy who was, you know, tracking and came back from where he came back. Um, but he could also go down as a as a tour and a Jiro winner, and that'd be even better.
0: The news and the decision torpedoes one of the big storylines that we were covering coming into this race, which was that Jumbo-Visma and Ineos were entering the race with three protected GC readers, api- GC riders apiece, which was something that was totally unprecedented. And how you know we would never had teams with three protected GC riders going up against each other. So the other element that torpedoes that is that Stephen Croyswijk on Team Jumbo-Visma is out. He crashed at the Criterium du Dauphiné. I believe it was a separated shoulder. Um, he will not be in the Tour de France. So Jumbo is down a man as well. Uh, before we get off of Team Ineos, though, I mean, my question also is, are we going to see a scenario where Egan Bernal is now the undisputed leader, or do we think that Pavel Sivakov and potentially Richard Carapaz will be will be getting GC opportunities and also, what does this mean for Richard Carapaz? I mean, you go into this year, the defending Giro d'Italia, champion. You think your entire season is going to be based around a Giro defense. You're probably peaking for that, training for that. And all of a sudden, your race season is bumped up by a few months or by a month to go uh, race the Tour de France. That's the other question I have. Up. What does this mean for poor Richard Carapaz? Yeah,
1: poor, poor Richard Carapaz signs a multi million dollar deal with the wealthiest <laughs> team in, in cycling, and they send him to the Tour de France. I bet he gets a lot of sympathy. Uh, you know, he, he was, uh, I think, probably uh, pretty early on behind the scenes, uh, looking at bringing Carapaz to the tour pretty early. I think in this, when they, when this whole schedule was reshuffled around, um, I think that the advantage there, you remember those two guys obviously were training in altitude the entire time. You know, Carapaz, I think lives even higher than uh, Burnout. And he lives like at 4,000 feet somewhere in the Ecuadorian Andes. So those guys, just in their training rides, are just getting, you know, a huge advantage over anybody stuck in Europe. Um, but, you know, what does it mean? I think, I mean, already Brelsford has said that Karapaz is a protected rider. So it's going to be uh, Bernan Carapaz as their two leaders. And then Sivikov, I think, will be floating in there, like James said. I mean, this guy has a lot of potential. And of those three guys, I think it's like Sivikov is the one that's been flying the best so far. I had a nasty crash there in that last race, but he he doesn't think he's too seriously injured. So, but it's going to be a completely different, uh, style of racing for Enos. You know, Fortress Froome is gone. Garrett Thomas is not there. Uh, Bernal now kind of assumes the mantle of full leadership with kind of, uh, Carapaz is kind of like co-captain, but it's clearly Bernal's ship. So I think it's going to be a completely different way of racing. And by having, uh, Jumbo Visma so strong, it'll make it, Almost easier for Ineos in a sense to kind of control the race, to not have all the responsibility on their shoulders to control the breakaways, to control the stages in the Massi Central. It's a very hard tour. So having a, a strong Jumbo Visma will play to their advantage. And I think, you know, the race won't get decided really until the last week in the Alps. And that's where that altitude native of Carapaz and Bernal, I think, just like last year with Bernal, you just outshine the rest of those euros uh yeah i i think
2: in, in a sense you know we're gonna see i mean the dauphine is, is always a very telling uh, race but it's not the ultimate race and there's always guys who are going really great at the dauphine and others who you know are still on their way up and make a big jump between the dauphine and tour so we'll see where this goes but as it stood in the dauphine you know clearly uh outside of bernal you know they i think that they were uh they were overwhelmed by Jumbo. Who knows? Maybe that's one reason why Bernal dropped out. He saw he was going to finish second. He didn't want to finish second. He's a Tour de France winner. Uh, just pull out and go off and do a recount of a stage or two here and there and refocus, you know. the And, but anyway, Bernal, you know, is their best chance to win. And I think, but I think as a result, they, they, they realize that, hey, we might not be in the driver's seat this year. There's also a chance for us to re- rebuild, uh, give Sivakov a chance. I don't know that he's, you know, tour winner potential yet, but, you know, give him a chance to run. Maybe go for some stages. We'll see what, what happens there. And, you know, Carapaz, you know, he's one of those wild cards. I mean, who would have really picked him to win last year? Everybody was looking at Londa, and that set him up perfectly uh, for the Giro stage win. And they could play that card. And obviously the fact that that uh, that uh, Jumbo has now lost uh, Kreuzweg, one of their big, big cards, you know, sort of evens the, the numbers out. Although <laughs> when he got Sepcoo riding like he's riding, well, you know, you put, you, I think I think Sep's going to can, can be just as big of a player as as uh, can be.
0: So the storyline there is that yeah, instead of the three liter a piece heavyweight battle, we're going to have two leaders a piece. But hey, both strong, very very strong leaders. I, I I keep thinking that Tom Dumoulin, if you know a couple things go his way could end up uh, winning the Tour de France. So I, I'm going to keep my eye on him. Um, guys, let's get on to the next big news story that happened this week. This was a this was a Velo News exclusive. This was an Andrew Hood special. Um, late on Thursday, Andy broke the news that the Tour de France had disseminated a document outlining its health protocols for COVID-19, specifically in what to do in case of positive tests. And the... The messaging is that it is a two strikes and you're out type system where if a team has two riders or two staffers at the race, either test positive for COVID-19 or show very strong symptoms that they have the virus, the team will be removed from the race. Um, once this information was published, it kicked off something of a firestorm with the team's Andrew Hood. Catch us up to speed on where teams and the race are with this policy and what some of the perspective has been after it was announced.
1: Yeah, like, like any, any good scoop in journalism, Fred, you know, they just kind of sometimes show up uh, a little happy bird dropped out onto my lap kind of thing, you know. So ha, sometimes those good, good, fair tidings happen in journalism. But yeah, I mean, it was a bombshell because everyone was waiting. You know, that was the big question going into this tour. You know, what was going to happen? If uh, there was a COVID positive, uh, we'd heard from some of the other races, they had their protocols. And this at the tour was much stricter than what we had even heard uh, at the at the Burgos. It was uh, they were talking three uh, cases per team uh, within a five day race. So having two cases within uh, really almost a 30 day period, because the, the lockdown period begins on Wednesday this week. So a team could actually theoretically be removed from the tour even before it starts because everyone goes into their bubble starting Wednesday in Nice. Some of the teams are already down there and uh, they have to, of course, pass these two controls before they're allowed into their, quote, bubble. And then uh, everyone will be tested again on the two rest days. So it really set off a a firestorm just simply because uh, on on the backdrop of this of what we have seen are what appeared to be kind of a couple of false positives. We've had riders are testing negative, testing negative, and then pop for a PCR uh, positive. And then the next follow-up test within days, sometimes the next day, is negative. So uh there's actually a meeting scheduled. I'm not sure when this podcast will go out, but it's scheduled for Tuesday this week before the tour between ASO and uh the, the teams and the AIJCP to kind of clarify and hash out some of these issues. So we might see a change in that policy. In fact, already Prudhomme kind of rolled it back uh, telling Reuters over the weekend that it's not two cases during the entire tour, it's two cases within a week. So it's huh. already, they're already the narrowing right. that window well. a, a little bit. So, uh, I mean, the teams are, are very upset about this because they're like, Look, we've spent hundreds, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, testing our riders, being very cautious. I mean, riders teams have been up in the Alps after the Dauphiné. Most of the teams kept their bubble intact from that race right up to the Alps. I know Movistar was up there and Maribel, and and other teams were up there, and uh, you know now they're they're going into the context of a Tour de France, which will still be open. The tour is still going to have its publicity caravan. The tour is still allowing the media. James and I will be there next week. Uh, And and the tour is still allowing fans to go to the roads, along the roads. So the teams are going, well, hold on a second. You're holding us to this higher standard, which, you know, if we're out of the tour, that's like a disaster for any team. Yet the tour still wants to have its kind of full-on show to, you know, to make all their uh, sponsors and backers happy. So there's a lot of tension there. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see this kind of rolled back even a little bit more. Well, hey,
2: you know, one thing you know, the tour takes care of the tour. The bottom line. Okay. Uh, they are the biggest machine in, 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 the, in the sport. They only get bigger. And, um, and they're, they're thinking about number one. And what are they thinking about? They're thinking about lawsuits. They're thinking about insurance, uh, things like that. And they're making it very hard on all of us. We've all been, you know, that we've all, all, you know, they dropped new regulations on the media, uh, much more stricter than the Dauphine, um, which I thought was, I told them, I said, I said to many people at ASL said, if these are the working conditions at the tour, I think we can make this work this year. Well, no, they, they took out many other options, made it much harder. So it's essentially what they did to the teams. But the difference is the teams have a little bit more money, a little more power than us, me the journalists, and they have a little more pushback power. And that's what they're doing, thank God. Um, and, you know, I certainly understand, you know, if, yeah, if two riders go positive all of a sudden. Well... You know, that's, uh, you know, the, the, the red flags were up. So I, I understand ASO's position, but the, the team certainly didn't like the way that this was handled. There was no discussion, no dialogue. And ASO just came in and sort of upped the ante without, um, without really any, any dialogue or discussion. And that's what that was one of the things that really, really upset people. And they're going, hey, you know, what happens if our bus driver uh, gets popped? You know, well, we're all going to have, have to go home. we don't get no we got nobody to drive a bus. Or, you know, are you going to bring somebody else in? But there's a person been tested in the proper amount of time and all this and that, you know, I mean, it gets very tricky very quickly.
0: Yeah, to me, what um, what stood out as creating a lot of tension was the language around, um, yeah, team staffers and not just test positive, but like show symptoms. So I actually th- – I don't know. I looked at the policy and I was like, yeah, I mean, you know, hey, if you want to be safe from COVID-19 and you want to have an event and you want to, you know, you're going to have to sacrifice some things and you're going to have to create sort of this draconian situation in which, you know, there is very little leeway given because this virus spreads so quickly and you don't want a scenario like we're seeing with Major League Baseball where, boom, an entire team all of a sudden has COVID-19 and has to sit out and, you know, that that's just not the way to do the sport. So you got to have some type of policy that's very strict. But to me – where I saw uh, the potential for headaches was, yeah, like A, if it's symptoms, and then B, if it's not riders but staffers, because you you know that then that then puts the onus on the teams to be very disciplined and also very transparent, because you can see you could very easily envision a situation where. What if, yeah, it's a team bus driver and a soigner and all of a sudden they have fevers. And, you know, the teams themselves are in charge of policing internally for this type of stuff. You know, the riders, they're going to get tested and the team doctors are going to carry out tests. But as, as I understand it, the team doctors are going to be the ones monitoring the staff person. It's not like the Tour de France is going to be monitoring staff people. So you're, you're really relying on teams to do the right thing in a potentially challenging scenario and say, Hey, yeah, you know, our bus driver and our Swanee, they don't really feel well. They have fevers. They're doing whatever. We're going to, you know, go down with the ship. We're going to pull the pin on the grenade and like, get us out of the race. And that just, you know, and some fans pointed this out on Twitter, like that stands at odds with what we remember from the battle days where, you know, the whole, the, the, these teams were like, so skilled at keeping information from the race and from journalists and from um, the wider world, where you know you couldn't really rely on teams internally to do the right thing. And hey, we're in a different era; we have different mechanisms and different people running these teams. But still, like I just look, I looked at the the document and I was like, boy, this is putting a lot of onus on teams to do the right thing um, in a situation in which. All the messaging we've heard of coming into the Tour de France is like some of these teams are relying on the Tour de France for their survival. Like making it through the Tour de France is going to give their sponsors the impression, the ROI, the whatever they need to justify the team's existence. So what are they going to do in a scenario where it's like, hey, you know, bus driver and Swanee have fevers. You know, we got to pull the pin on the grenade. But that might mean the end of the team. Like it's just it's it's creating a potentially sticky situation
2: we've of course all watched every season of the wire and we follow the money. And obviously, you know, that's the end of like you pinned it. I mean, these, their, their existence is on that. And, you know, let's say, I, I mean, the, the one, the one thing that's different is, as Andy said, you know, testing on the rest days, two rest days. Well, what happens if the, the testing by ASO or on the rest day comes up with two positives on a team? That's gonna be harder to avoid. Uh But, you know, and and you know, you can already see, you know, all the rumors are gonna swirl around if all of a sudden two riders pull out of a of a team, right? Uh it's all of a sudden you well, did they really have stomach aches or or the runs or did uh is there something else going on? And then, you know, did any other staff go home? Oh, I heard that uh, you know, the third mechanic uh, you know, went home or the the, the assistant cooker, you know you know, it's just gonna be nonstop. Uh, I, I don't really look forward to that and I hope we don't get there.
1: Yeah, just to follow up on, on the COVID controls and the protocols, uh, apart from that, that two strikes rule, which you know, I think you got to draw the line somewhere, I think, I think probably two yeah. is too much personally because, I mean, everyone's asymptomatic and, and uh, you know the, the conditions for the young, healthy ricer is not as bad as, of course, if it's with a, your old grandpa. But, um, but I think in the larger picture, the idea of this bubble or these tests and having, uh, you know, all these space, all this personal space in between the journalists and between the fans and having, uh, you know, in that document as well spells out how they're going to have teams staying together in the hotel in a wing on the same hotel floor, uh, eating separate spaces in the dining room. Not mixing really with anybody. And when you do talk to riders, when I talked to Larry Warbase the other day, you know, he, he tested positive and he thinks it's a false positive. But he goes, he goes, literally, he goes, I have not seen anybody For like the last month, besides my teammates, we've all tested negative. He goes, I've gone literally to the market like two days in the last two weeks. And he goes, I have no idea how or where I could have picked up COVID. Maybe he's not. Maybe it's a false positive. But the idea of the bubble, I think the integrity of it, if it's kept uh, intact, I think is quite an effective, really, uh, the only really way to get through something like the tour. Because I think the bigger danger of the tour is going to be going into some of these infected areas where I think – like in Spain, where I'm at, we're starting to see some major outbreaks. We could very well see some stages just get canceled. And say, hey, man, we can't go through the Massif Central. We've got to skip from stage 12 to stage 14. Well, or the island, you
2: know, the big island stage. Hey, this is a very small, close in population. You're bringing, bringing in a population of 3,000 on a little island. Uh, is that, I mean, you know, I got in my hotel, you know, Andy and I, we, we got our hotels on Ile de Rey where we got, we've already ordered our oysters, but. You know, is that the best thing uh, to bring a 3,000, you know, field uh, into a little small island? I mean, we'll probably double double the number of that island that night. That might not be the best uh, in terms of sanitary measures. I would hate that because since the presentation of the tour, this has been the stage that I'm most looking forward to.
0: Well, it's a story that will probably continue to evolve and we'll keep our finger on the pulse of. But yeah, I'm I'm with you guys. This presents just a, a new wrinkle. Um, I think we all hope that it is an effective tool against COVID-19 at the race because worst case scenario is the tour has to shut down. So, you know, there's another part of me that just looked at it. It's like, well, you know, this this sucks, but it's sort of like if you got you to crack a couple of eggs to make an omelet. And so if we as a society and as a sport are willing to take on the huge risk of holding this race amid the pandemic, I mean, let's not lose sight of that fact. I mean, this is a huge risky ordeal that I think a lot of people – are looking at objectively and saying this is dumb what the heck is cycling doing why you know this this is this is too risky so by by having these rules you know i think my hope is that it does prevent anything from going on but we are heading into into the great unknown you heard it at the top of the show, but live bike racing is back, and Flow Bikes is your home for the biggest events of the year. Get unprecedented access to live coverage of the Giro d'Italia, Tour of Flanders, Amstel Gold Race, and much, much more. Subscribe today by going to flowbikes.com forward slash velonews. Additionally, Canadian viewers get the Tour de France, Vuelta Espana, Liege-Bastogne-Liege, and Paris-Roubaix. Again, flowbikes.com forward slash velonews. That is F-L-O, bikes.com. Forward slash News. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. Those are the two big, big, big news pieces we had to hit. Now um, we're going to pivot and we're going to get to our contenders ranking because even in the last week, our top 10 contenders list has been wadded up like an old receipt from CVS thrown into the trash can because number six, Garrett Thomas and number, well, I'm not going to say which number he was, Chris Froome gone from the list. So as we um, continue to perfect this exercise, I think we're going to have to do a little revision here after we get through our list. So the last we left off, we had talked about number six, Garrett Thomas. Um The guy we have number five is a writer who turned heads on a number of stages at last year's Tour de France. I thought he was gunning for the podium, maybe even for the win, and then he got a knee injury and dropped out. That of course is Thibaut Pinot. We have him ranked number 5 on the top 10 contenders list. First question, is number 5 a good ranking for him should he be higher or lower? Well,
2: if Pinot, you know, pulls it together, he's certainly podium material. Um but it's, you know, he, and he was podium. He, he finished on the podium in 2014. When he's, you know, just in terms of legs and lungs, the guy could win the Tour de France, especially a tour like this year. In terms of head, uh, pressure, that sort of stuff, well, he could lose the Tour de France in many ways. And we saw it at the Dauphiné. You know, I mean, he virtually had the Dauphiné handed to him on a silver platter after uh, Primoz Roglic dropped out. He was in second. He was clearly the second best rider and the only serious challenger to Roglic. And all he had to do was stay at the front. He had about a 30-second margin, I think. And, uh, you know, the attacks started coming and he got overwhelmed and uh, he lost it. You know, he still finished second. And uh, that's sort of typical Pinot, unfortunately. He's a really nice guy. I really like Thibaut. I, I put him down on my uh, Velo games uh, for years. Uh, I think he's pure class and talent. But he does have an issue with pressure.
0: What tends to be the French media's take on Thibaut Pino. If Ala Philippe was the swashbuckling musketeer who like grabbed hearts and minds last year, what does the French media and the French fans, what do they tend to think about old Thibaut?
2: You know, I think they're I think really um, they they generally like him, but they don't know him. Sure he's won the Tour of Lombardy. You know, the guy's not Raymond Pulidor, right? The guy, that's not fair to say right? you know, Raymond Poulidor in all fairness, did win a Tour of Spain and, and Milan Sanremo, among other things. Uh, some Perinistas too. Um, but you know, he needs to pop a modern day tour ride. He needs to be if he pops one of those Al Philippe rides. You no, know, he got he got on the podium at third in 2014, but Nibali was so far ahead of everybody. Al Philippe finished fifth, but he was the golden board for 14 days. And and he's just so, you know, innately charismatic. And Pino is much more discreet. Uh, you know, he likes to go fishing. He's a really nice guy, a really mellow guy. Uh, not at all a sort of superstar mentality, no ego. Um, Just likes to ride his bike and go hard. And um, all the makings are there for a great story if he can pull out a really great result, and that means in the Tour de France.
0: Looking at his team, again, we're going to have David Gaudu for the mountains, Stefan Kung driving the engine, uh, Sebastian Reichenbach, another good climbing domestique. I mean, I think on paper, you could look at Groupama, FDJ, and say that they do have a very strong lineup, for Pino, so really, like you said, it's going to come down to him and his head and his his legs and lungs. Well, yeah, they have a good lineup. They don't have a great
2: lineup. You know, they don't have a they don't have a Jumbo Visma lineup. Yeah, uh, they don't have any right. They don't have a kiatowski there. Uh, I mean, Kiyatowski's just a beast uh, when it comes to teamwork duties. They don't have that. Uh, Stephen Kung is tremendous, but you know, but he's tremendous on the flat stages in a team time trial. Uh, how well is he going to be explored? I don't know. Uh, Reichenbach was. Tremendous in the Dauphine, but he was the only guy they had. Um, who else they got? Rudy. And they got David Godu. Godu has been struggling a little bit trying to get his form. He didn't do the Dauphine. He was sick. Uh, so, you know, we'll see where he goes there. They have a good team in the mountains. And, you know, obviously uh, in the high mountains, you know, it, the team is on its man, man against man. And at that point, it's going to depend on, on Pino's legs. But there's no reason why he can't be on the podium. For sure.
0: All right. On to number four, Mr. Nairo Quintana. He has been on the podium multiple times. It seems like just yesterday that it was 2013 and he was the revolution revelation of the Tour de France. And we were like trying to count up the number of Tour uh, tours de France he was going to win. Um, obviously, he's not won any of them. But he uh-huh. seems to be revitalized on this French RKS Samsic team after so long with Movistar Hoodie. In your readings of Quintana quotes and stories on him, I mean, what's your general take on his vibe this year? Yeah, I mean, he
1: came in uh, hot off the barrel there at the beginning of the spring. Uh, he he skipped racing all the Colombian races and went straight into France. And I think James was down at some of those races. You know, he was just he was going really well. Uh, his his you know he he was coming across as a kind of a new newborn rider. I think there was you know things just did not end well there at star between. Quintana and uh, the team there, um, you know, there was some grumbling, and they're you like know, Quintana got a little bit too big for his britches, you know, because Quintana is like a king in in Colombia. His nickname is King Tana. Yeah. Um, he's like a huge, absolutely huge media like. star back back in Colombia, and much bigger than even Bernal. Uh, in fact, uh, Rigoberto Urán and and Quintana are the two big stars, and and Bernal has really kept a low profile. In fact, Bernal after he won the tour last year. Kind of, you know, I didn't want to have all the all the attention that uh, that people wanted to lavish on him. In fact, he turned down a a, a chance to meet the Colombian president, turned down the whole ticker tick parade, and just had a small little uh, you know party at his hometown and kind of just avoided the limelight. Whereas Quintana has fully embraced it, so uh, he feels I think uh, you know unfettered now on this French team. But you know, today they announced their team. You know, the team I would say is not nearly as good as movie star. I think part of the problem with Movistar was always just getting everyone heading in the same direction at the same time. Uh you know when you look at the lineup there on Arkea, uh you know they don't have the the wattage and the mountains that that Movistar would have for for Quintana. So it will be Quintana on his own kind of freelancing and trying to follow the wheels and we'll just see. I mean, you know I think Quintana's best is maybe behind him. I mean, last couple of years we've seen him struggling to, you know, kind of gets blown out in some of those first big climbs, and then it kind of evolves into a stage hunting mode for Quintana, so I think he'll try to hang in there as long as he can. I mean on paper, the route is, suits him fairly well but i just I just don't see but having said that, he looked impressive this spring, but in general, I just see Quintana having a pop to be able to stay with uh, the burn owls and when the big moves go late in this tour uh Andy, I beg to differ, I beg to differ.
2: You know, that, that stage he won uh, in the Alps, if his own team hadn't chased him down last year, he was in the yellow jersey. If his team put the brakes on, it could have been a very different tour de to France last year. But, they, you know, I mean, the, the, their sense of race tactics is, is, I don't know where it comes from, Mars maybe. Um, and that's always been a problem, as you said. Um, I've, I, I was certainly disappointed by his return to form after his really stunning uh, opener this season. He was unbeatable this season and it didn't take a 2000 meter climb to make him unbeatable. It took a thousand, you know, put him up 900, 1,000, 1200 meters. Nobody could fuck. Nobody could follow his wheel. Nobody. And that kind of Cantana, if he had those legs right now, it'd be a different game, but he doesn't, he was, uh, he was dropped uh, on the Mont Ventoux, not, not, not strong at all. Uh, I'm not saying that's strong, but you know, not, not a player, not in there for the win, you know? Um, and, uh, and he was never in the hunt for the win here at the Dauphine, which surprised me a bit. Um, that team itself is, is better than I, I think, um, we, we sometimes give a credit for because we, we have it pegged as a sort of second rate continental team. But, um, you know, Warren Barguil is the you know, best climber in the tour, two time stage winner. Uh, he's been riding, you know, very consistently. Uh, certainly can, uh, can, can be a, a good support rider for him. And, um, Guys, with you know, not such a big name like uh, um, uh, uh, the name escapes me. Oh, darn it! You got the you got the team list there, Fred.
0: Yeah, we have a uh, winner: Anacona, Warren Bargill, Maxim Boue, Dyer Quintana, Diego Rosa, Clement Russo, and Connor Swift.
2: Yeah, Maxime's a you know a very good utility man. Um, and then he's you know he's got a, a few people that he brought over from Movie Star. So you know when you get, and again when you get up in the high mountains, you know in the last couple of kilometers, you know, it's not about your teammates, it's about you. And if if if, if he is showing the form he showed at the beginning of the year and, and can improve on that, um, I think that he is certainly podium material. But I was disappointed by his return, uh since since uh COVID.
0: Yeah, I would love nothing more than to see Nairo do something at this year's tour, but boy, yeah, like when he was blowing people away in February and early March, some of those races in Provence and stuff, he just was I mean Sepkos couldn't keep up with him and uh the the playing field seems a little e- more even right now. So we have him as fourth. I think that's fair. Maybe a little high. Maybe I would put Pino or someone else above him. Um yeah, I, maybe I put like Tom Dublon above him, but uh there he goes. He's our number 4. Um the last before we need to deviate is our number 3, uh Primo's Roglich. Which, I don't know, guys, what do you think? Number three contender, is that too low? Definitely not too high.
2: Well, if you can stay on a bike, um, it's, you know, he's right there. I mean, he's going to be the man to beat. Um, although, you know, his Instagram post said, you know, his teammates were out training this week, and he's still on a, on a, on a home trainer thinking, you know, I thought it was going to be a little easier to get over this thing. So we'll see where that goes, uh, if, it, if it, uh, it takes its place. But at th- this point, you know, once you get to the podium – you know, everybody's right there. This this race is going to be so wide open. It's not even funny. And, uh, you know, I think one of the real stories here is not going to be who's necessarily the strongest, but who can survive this tour.
1: Yeah, I mean, Rublich on paper, I think this this, this tour uh, suits Rublich very well. Um, obviously, the way that uh, Jumbo Visma was riding uh, for the first half of uh, the Dauphiné was just stunning. Uh, the, the wheels came off that cart pretty fast. And they lost uh And uh, Rolovich crashes out. So we'll just have to wait and see. I I totally agree with James. I mean, this is unlike any tour, really, we've ever seen disrupted calendar, COVID, people in lockdowns, people coming off, just all kinds of random kind of bits of form. So I think it's going to be a a drag out race. It's going to go all the way, I think, you know, all the way into these last stages in the Alps. And that final time trial could really, I think, decide the podium. Uh, I still think a winner would be kind of in the driver's seat going into that final uh, time trial. But, but uh, you know, Roglic, you know, last year went to the Giro, kind of the same thing, kind of crumbled, but then he bounced back and really delivered the victory uh, in, in an impressive way at the Welta. I mean, the is not the Tour, but man, this Tour looks like a Welta when you look at its route, the way that it's built up, um, at least for the first two weeks, so it looks very Welta-esque. So that's going to play, I think, into Jumbo's strengths. I mean, their idea, just like Enios, is trying to keep their guys into that podium frame going into the last week. And then I think really it's just a question of who has the legs.
0: Yeah. I keep coming back to that Giro. I had a lot of hopes for Roglic and it was like he had the crash, the bike change and things just never were really the same after that. Um, I mean, he is such a strong rider. I have no doubt that he can perform over three weeks, but it was like, there was a lot of pressure on him. He had a crash stuff started to go poorly at the midpoint of the race. And it just seemed like he never bounced back from that. So I don't know. I mean, It's the tour. There's no one can have a perfect race, but as strong as he was at the Dauphiné, the lingering questions I have about him is yeah, what happens if something goes wrong? Like, does he, is he a rider that needs to have a perfect race in order for him uh, to win? Um, Although, I guess at the Welta, there was this, that crosswind day when the race blew up and he was not in it. Hoodie, you were there. And he didn't panic and had his team methodically close the gap to some of those Raiders. That was not a perfect situation by any means, but it wasn't like he had crashed or anything.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Fred. I think when things are going well for Robo, which he's almost unbeatable, but during the course of a Tour of France, I mean, nothing ever goes perfect. And I think uh, that Giro last year, you know, kind of things started to crumble for him. And that's where a guy, you know, like, like Froome and some of these other winners in the past that can, Kind of be able to pull through those difficult moments and and then deliver the 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 knockout blow. That's that what's really sets apart a tour winner. But uh, I mean, I think also though that Welta gave that Welta win last year gave not only Rovich but that entire organization kind of a huge confidence boost. You know, it's one thing to say you want to win a tour or want to win a grand tour, but to actually do it is something quite different. That's why I think Enios, despite kind of uh, these question marks about you know the new kind of team. The new faces there, you know, the DNA of that team is winning the Tour de France. and I think it's going to prove decisive really in this showdown between Enos and, and Jumbo is that Enos knows how to win the Tour. They've been doing it year in, year out for eight years. And Jumbo's coming in and trying to knock him off that throne. And it's going to be very hard. So I think the key is going to be who has the yellow jersey, you know, really going into that, those final big stages. Because, you know, defending a yellow jersey is much different than trying to take it away from someone else.
2: Well, who has the who has the yellow jersey and, and who has a team left? Because you know they're starting the, the race with eight. Uh, you know one of the, the reasons one of the reasons that that Roglic lost the the Giro last year was he he barely had a team in the last two weeks uh, and um, and he was very isolated and he'd been going you know full gas since what February winning everything. Uh, this year, you know, he has not been going full gas. He hadn't even raced, I think, uh, before lockdown. Um, so he's going to be much fresher. But the teams are small. And, um, you know, I was on a motor in those days in the Dauphiné. It was crazy. I mean, I've never seen anything like that. I mean, guys crashing, guys dropping out, knee injury, back injury, this and that. You know, uh, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be a sort of last man standing uh, sort of situation, I think. And it could be very unpredictable. And, you know, hey, if uh, if, uh, if, if Primo's uh, cracks in the last week, well, bring on the sep.
0: Just like Dauphiné. Bring on the sep. I love it. Um, All right, guys, for number two is where we have to deviate from our list because in all of my wisdom, I listed Chris Froome as the number two contender for this year's Tour de France based a lot on, you know, his physical skills, but also the fact that he is the most experienced Grand Tour winner in this year's race. He's won all three Grand Tours. He has had four uh, Tour de France wins. I thought that would be even if he wasn't up to 100% physically would give him the mental edge to do something at this year's race. Of course, all of that analysis has been wadded up and thrown in the waste basket. So before we get to our number one contender, I thought an exercise we could do, since Chris Froome and Garen Thomas are kicked off the list, is look at some of the guys on the bubble of being a contender and decide which two deserve to be on our list. So here is my list of other contenders who didn't quite make the top ten, Each of us is going to choose two who should be in our top 10 list. So, Emmanuel Bookman, Roman Bardet, Mikel Landa, Rigoberto Uran, Danny Martinez, Alejandro Valverde, Bauke Molema, Richie Porte, Guillaume Martin, Miguel Angel Lopez, and Dan Martin. Uh, James, we'll start with you. Of that lineup, I mean, who are are the two that you would include on your list?
2: Did you say uh, Sergio Higuita?
0: I did not. No, I, we can put him on the list. We can. Okay. I,
2: I, it's good. You know, I really liked what uh, EF uh, did at the Dauphiné. And I think they, they have the power to be one of the big surprises in this year's tour. Uh, they've got Iran, they've got Higuita and they've got uh, Martinez who won the Dauphiné. Higuita uh, came in the Dauphiné as, you know, I was, I had him on my, you know, my fellow games. I'll tell you that. After his Paris but he crashed really heavily in the in first or second stage and was just through Petra the rest of the time. But I think he's going to have time to have a recovery. He did finish the race? Um, I'm hoping. Um, I think Iran Iran had a you know, he's kind of the favorite because he's got he's already been second in uh, the Giro and in the Tour. But I think that he's still under par after his his uh, you know crash ridden uh, season last year. But he's a, he's a sort of Decoy for the team, and I think that uh, Martinez or Higuita could be a real surprise this year. And I think the team has a history of being opportunistic; uh, they know how to do that. I think back on that 2013 Tour uh, stage in the Pyrenees um, when Dan Martin won for them, and you know they just went out and said, "Hey, if half the team is out of the race and out of the time splits afterwards, that, that's not a big deal. We're just going to go blow this race apart." And Chris Froome almost lost his first Tour de France that day. That was the only, and that was the first time where you realize. If you get a team that goes in and there with that kind of mentality, you can upset these big armadas. And I think that's if, – if they have that kind of mentality, then I think they, get, they can get they can get one of the – we throw Martinez on the podium.
0: How about you, hoodie? Which two uh, second-tier contenders do you think should be on our top 10 list? Uh, I would add Bookman
1: and Landa. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bookman last year, fourth, clearly. I think he got banged up. But I, I saw today the team confirmed he's racing. Uh, you know he's he's kind of one of these steady Freddy kind of riders. He's not going to blow the wheels off anybody, but he was always there last year, and he's, st- he's shown a very steady progression. And if things are going well for him, I think he could easily punch into the top five, maybe even podium this year uh, with this kind of course. Where I think it's going to be just a, a knockdown drag out fight. So it's all going to be about who has the legs to kind of stay in there. And uh, and then Landa, of course, is the perennial fourth place kind of guy, right? I mean. He's, he's one of these underachievers in the bunch a guy that you know has everything really for him to have won a grand tour to have been on that tour podium. he's always just kind of missed out on a, on a few things which just gone wrong for him uh, he's not quite a Richie port he's done better than Richie uh, you know Richie's another one of these guys that kind of never quite perhaps lived up to their potential uh, but it's all about delivering on the road and so I think that team you know they obviously left Cavendish off and a few other guys so they're coming in with a pretty well-rounded team to support Landa, and I think he'll. Uh, I think Landa will do better than I think people are expecting.
2: He, he's going to have to do a lot better than he was at Dauphine. I'll tell you that. He uh, he did not crash. He had no excuses. His team was like going to the front, riding for him on that last day. They were riding for him, and he just got blown out. I mean, he finished there what fifteen minutes down.
0: Yeah, Landa. I mean, he has a strong team. He's got Welt poles. I mean, he's you know such a good domestique, and they you know they're not even taking uh, oh, what's your man's name, the Belgian guy who won a stage last year. Um, so on paper, you'd think that Landa has it and he's, he is a steady rider. So I could see him crack the top 10. He's like a seventh place pick. Um, I keep wondering about old Roman Bardet. I mean, the beginning of the year, he was supposedly targeting the Giro d'Italia, but with the rescheduling of the tour and there's so many of these punchy climbs, I do wonder if Bardet could pull a rabbit out of a hat and make it onto the podium again. Um, but now I think I'm going to go with... Bookman and uh, Danny Martinez. You know, when I think about Emmanuel Bookman, I think back to last year's stage. What was it? Fifteen. That crazy Pyrenean day when Simon Yates took the stage win and uh, Pino attacked and dropped Bernal. And Buchmann was just right there. It was basically Pino, Bookman, and Bernal as the three top climbers in that year's Tour de France. And if he can get on that form again, I could see him. I could see him potentially making a run of the podium.
2: I, I do think that that Bardet is uh, a real player. Again, this is a perfect course for him. He's opportunistic. He attacks. These climbs are great for him. And he's coming back. He's, he's a father now. His head's in a much better place than it was. Uh, he got what six of the Dauphine. Uh, he was top 10 in the French national championships, which were not at all a course for him. Um, I think he's gaining confidence by the day. Um, so I wouldn't count him out. I think there's a, you know, there's a lot of cats out there. I mean, uh, Guillaume Martin is, is riding tremendous for Cofies right now. Um, and you can't overlook him. I don't think he's a tour winner, but he's one of those guys that's always going to be on the wheels. Always, I think he's definitely top five.
0: So last guy on our list, number one, rider, number one contender for this year's Tour de France, obviously Egan Bernal. Um, not looking super at the Dauphiné, had to pull out with back injury, but still, when you look at this year's Tour de France, all the climbing, um, his experience, the fact that he won last year – Um, we had to put him as number one. And I think he is a very capable number one. I think the real question is, yeah, is it going to be a Bernal or a Roglic? You know, he was a few steps behind Roglic on some of those mountaintop finishes. Uh, And the question is, can he get to that same level and then just ride a more consistent and ride a smart race? Um, Egan Bernal, top contender. Any uh, deviations from either of you on that? Yeah, I still think Bernal is the favorite to win this tour. Um, I think, you know, his progression,
1: <clears throat> just, you know, his first year at the tour, you know, he, he learned the ropes with the team, uh, pulling for Froome and, and, Thomas that, that year, you know, just blew the, you know, blew people away how, how strong he was, you know, on that, remember that stage to, up to West. you know, just a preview of how, how much class this guy had. I and mean, then last year, um, you know, I was working on, I'm working on a little story when I wrote out on VeloNews News later this week, just kind of like how the dynamics of last year's race could have easily had tilted Towards Garrett Thomas, Garrett Thomas, you know, in terms of you know he was really uh, in the virtual jersey, in the virtual yellow jersey after that time trial. know, I mean, no one expected Alaphilippe to hang around as long as he did, and uh, you know, had they been able to crack Alaphilippe in the Pyrenees, you know, just based on placement, Garrett Thomas would have gotten the yellow jersey and carried it into the into the Alps, and you know, technically on paper, the team would have maybe ridden a very different tactic and Bernal might have had been in a situation where he might have been the strongest rider, but having to ride really in support and team loyalty for Garrett Thomas. Um, but it didn't play out that way. And if you look at the progression last year of, of Bernal, you know, he picked away, he was 128 behind Garrett Thomas after the time trial. So not only was he picking away time at Philippe, uh, he was also picking away time at his uh, teammate. And so Bernal the whole way through the Pyrenees, every time the roads went up, he was just on the move, recovering ground. And that just showed you the kind of racer he is and his, his his capability. So I think, I think they're going to race a race to protect Bernal. But once we get into the big mountains, you know, let him ride and just go mano a mano against Roglic and everybody else and see where the cards uh, fall. Because, you know, there is the potential really where Bernal could carry the yellow jersey out of the Pyrenees. And it's a whole different style of racing. And we have, you know, Ineos, Froome, Fortress style mentality around Bernal through the whole second half of this, of this tour. So I, I think that, uh, Bernal is still the rider to beat. And like I said earlier, I and mean, Ineos knows how to manage the race. Uh, it's just a question of going back to what James was saying, you know, who, who has the legs to last? You know, anybody, uh, it's been a, such a strange year. It's not been a lot of racing. Someone could look great on stage 15 and just completely collapse two days later. So. Bernal's my pig right now.
2: Uh, coulda, woulda, shoulda. There's a lot of that going on. Uh, Pinot, if he hadn't got caught in the winds, uh, went into the stage into Albi, uh, he was the strongest climber coming out of the Pyrenees, and he would have been in a different situation. And then, of course, if he hadn't had his knee injury, maybe he would have gone with Bernal in the Alps, and maybe he would have won the, won the tour that day. But it didn't happen that way either. Um, We'll see. Bernal won it. Bernal, um, he's gotten mentally, obviously, he's grown up a lot. He's a, obviously a tough cookie. He knows what he wants now. He's had the taste of victory. He knows he can do it. Um, and there's going to be a lot of opportunities for him. Uh, so I think he's – is he the man to be? I don't know who the man to beat is, to be honest with you. But I certainly wouldn't cut uh, cut him out by any stretch of the means and, and – um, you know, it's going to be a fascinating tour. It's going—I to, think—you know—could easily come back down into the last to the Alps, where they, you know, they they hit the two thousand meter climbs again in the last weekend. One, one thing I would—I would add, you know, the, one of the best days of bicycle racing I, I've seen in a long time was the last day of the Dauphiné. Why? Because the big machines, the big teams, the big armadas were dismantled through injury and crashes, and all of a sudden there was no early morning break. It was just all the big guns going for it. Uh, attacking out of the blocks before the first climb, you know, it was mayhem on the road and it was really exciting. And I, you know, if if that's what happens where, you know, guys are crashing out and and, and losing time in the Pyrenees, well, it's going to be a really exciting last 10 days.
0: I can't wait to see. uh, Guys, this was our final uh, prep podcast before you all head over to uh, Nice. So the next time we check up, I believe the tour will be Uh, one or two stages old and you will all be at the race so thanks so much for tuning in for James Starr and Andrew Hood it's Fred Dreyer Uh, we can't wait to have you along for our Tour de France coverage here on the Velo News Podcast